Hello, everybody. Um, so we're going to get started on this, the final session in our strand of debates for the battle for the economy, which is entitled From Robots to UBI, Is Capitalism Digging Its Own Grave? If you haven't been in the previous sessions in the strand, my name is Rob Lyons. I'm Science and Technology Director at the Academy of Ideas, and I also convene the Academy's uh, Economy Forum. Uh, thanks to our partners for the strands of debates, um, City AM. Um, back in 1990, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Eastern Bloc, the claim that there is no alternative to capitalism felt like it had some real force. But nearly 30 years on from those events, and after 10 years of economic stagnation following the financial crisis, there are plenty of people willing to consider if capitalism really is the final form of social and economic organisation. Where once the proletariat was seen as the agent for overthrowing capitalism, many writers see technology as finally providing the means to move to a new social model, whether it be called post-capitalism, communism or something else. Certainly robots and other forms of automation seem to be seen as both a threat to livelihoods and as having the potential to provide a good material existence for everyone. So are we really living in a watershed moment for capitalism? Is a new way of organising our economy really on the horizon? Far from ushering in a new society, however, will the internet and corporations simply result in digital capitalism 2.0? And if it does, is that a bad thing? So we have a panel of opinionated uh, and high-quality experts to discuss all this and more. I'll introduce them briefly, and then we'll ask for their thoughts for about five or six minutes, and then we'll bring the discussion out to you. So, sp speaking first, on my the, the left over here is Professor Guy Standing. He's a labour economist and currently professorial research associate at SOAS University of London. He produced two books at the end of last year. They're here. I mean, they're literally here. You can buy them from Guy after the session at a bargain price of £6 each because he, he gives you the author price. That's what a top guy he is. Um, <laughs> this book in particular, Basic Income and How We Can Make It Happen, is the fruit of 30 years of basic income advocacy as a founder and now honorary co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network, an international NGO promoting basic income as a right. His earlier book, The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class, has been translated into more than 20 languages. A book on, a book on reviving the commons as a progressive response to austerity is due to be published by Alan Lane next year. Uh, on my immediate left is Nikos Satirikopoulos. He's a lecturer in sociology at York St. John University at the School of Psychological and Social Sciences. With a background in politics and law, he is interested in how philosophy and political and economic theories shape social phenomena. Since 2011, he has been co-organising the Athens Battle of Ideas Satellite events, and since 2017, he has been an academic advisor to the Ayn Rand Centre. He is the author of The Rise of Lifestyle Activism from New Left to Occupy. Then on my immediate right, we have Wendy Liu. Uh, she's a software uh, developer and a former startup founder who left the tech industry to study inequality at the London School of Economics. She now spends most of her time writing about the tech industry, both about her own experience of being disillusioned by startups and about how technology can be repurposed to serve the collective good. For political publications like Notes from Below... Novara Media and New Internationalist. She is also an editor for the economic sec section of New Socialist. And talking of Novara Media, 
Aaron Bastani, uh, next to Wendy, is the co-founder of Navarra Media. He's an expert on digital media, protest and political communications and has published with, among others, The Guardian, Vice and LRB. He has a PhD in political communications from the New Political Communication Unit at Royal Holloway University of London. His first book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, a Manifesto, will be published by Verso in 2019. And finally, on the far right, uh, is Rob Harris. He works in the corporate sex side of the education sector, previously working as a researcher in an M&A role at TES. Now he works for the Sector's Trade Association. But obviously, that's the boring bit, really. Rob has actually been had a keen interest in the post-capitalist visions both within both fiction and non-fiction and runs an occasional blog on these topics at skepticaloptimism.com. He's previously written for Spikes and Philosophy Now. Rob is also the producer of this session. That's the battle of ideas, spirit. You see, if you want to debate a topic, suggest it and produce it. And that's what Rob's done here. So uh, thanks to Rob for that. So those are, that's our panel. Uh, as I said, five to six minutes each. They'll just uh, outline their thoughts on the topic. And then we'll come out to you. And I'm sure you'll have lots of points and questions. So, Guy. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to compress a lot in a very short time, so excuse me if it seems sketchy. We're in the middle of a global transformation, a painful construction of a global market system, analogous to what Karl Polanyi described as the great transformation in his famous 1944 book. And we've been undergoing the disembedded phase, which began in the 1980s with Thatcher and Reagan, pursuing what we now call neoliberalism liberalization of all markets, opening up a deregulation of finance, but a re-regulation of labor markets. And actually, a key theme of the Corruption of Capitalism book is that, ironically, they've unleashed the most unfree market economy ever conceived. That is what we have today. It is a big lie that we have a free market economy. And the key point came in 1994 with the passage of TRIPS by the World Trade Organization, because essentially by then, big finance, led by Goldman Sachs and Big Pharma, had effectively captured the international architecture of global capitalism. I worked in the United Nations for 30 years, interacted a lot with the World Bank, with the IMF, and with the European Commission, so I saw the careful construction by the multinationals of this system. Now, what TRIPS did was globalize the American intellectual property rights system. And what I mean by that is they turned global capitalism into rentier capitalism. So the returns to property, financial property, physical property, and most of all, intellectual property, has shot up. All across the world, in every part of the world, the share of national income going to capital has shot up. The share going to labor has shot down. Whether you have strong unions, weak unions, social democratic governments, or liberal governments, or whatever, it's happening everywhere. Ironically, most in China, where the share going to labor has dropped by 20 percentage points. An incredible shift. And what has happened is that the intellectual property rights gives monopoly powers to those who have patents or copyright or industrial designs or brands. So patents, for example, in 1995, there were fewer than 1 million filed. In 2015, there were more than 3 million fined, uh, fi uh, 
uh, filed. In that time, the income flowing to patent holders multiplied by sevenfold. So patents now account for over 20% of the world's income. What patents do is they guarantee a monopoly income to the patent holder for at least 20 years, in pharmaceuticals for 40 years. So nobody can compete with them. Same with copyright. It guarantees monopoly for 95 years in many countries, and the US is pushing through agreements to increase that. I could go on on that thing, but what the essential message of, of the development of rentier capitalism has been is that the income distribution system of the 20th century has broken down. More and more, we are seeing downward pressure on real wages across all industrialized countries. Real wages have been stagnating in the US, in Germany, in France, in Britain for the past 30 years. That is a dramatic change from the past. And what this has also meant is that governments have been shifting their fiscal policy to try and draw the multinationals and other capital uh, carriers to their countries through heavy subsidies. Part of the huge debt that built up before 2008 was due to governments trying to bid against each other giving subsidies to capital. Well, if you give subsidies, you're creating budget deficits. And if you're trying to cut taxes on corporations and the wealthy, you're increasing deficits. And then they turned around and said, we've got to have austerity and you've got to tighten your belts. So we're going to have to lower benefits for the poor and the group I'm about to mention. Because what has been happening, and this is the subject of the precariat books that I've written, is a new global class structure has taken place. We have a plutocracy and an elite at the top, a small salariat with employment security and pensions and all the trappings of, of employment. The old proletariat is dying, and the precariat has emerged in its place, every part of the world. And the precariat consists of people who have to put up with a life of bits and pieces, unstable labor, with having to do a lot of work for labor that means that they don't get remunerated. Their education tends to be above the level of labor they have to do, and they have to rely on money wages. Money wages that are increasingly volatile, they don't get non-wage benefits. They don't get access to rights-based state benefits. And they live on the edge of unsustainable debt. One mistake, one illness, one accident, and they're in disaster. I could go on. I've only got half a minute left. And I think that with the biggest challenge before us is that we have to build a new income distribution system. We will not see a rise in real wages in our country or in other rich countries in the foreseeable future. A little bit, a little bit, but nothing much. We have to realize that we have to move to give people basic income security as a right and redistribute, recycle the rent for ordinary people. Security, freedom, and social justice demand that. And then perhaps in the question times, I could go further into the justification. But I want to end by saying I've had the great privilege of doing pilots around the world where we've been able to provide thousands of people with basic income. And you went, if you see the results, you will feel, as I do, emotional. Nutrition improves, health improves, schooling of children goes up, economic activity of women and the disabled goes up. 
sanitation improves, and most of all, cooperation and altruism improve. This is what the future we have to build. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Guy. That was a very passionate and well-informed start. So, Nikos. Thank you. So, in the blurb, it is mentioned that Corbyn-style socialism is an indicator that this urge for something new. But actually, Corbyn-style socialists are not interested in anything remotely progressive or utopian. In reality, any actualization of such projects, for example, the sharing economy or Uber or Elon Musk's plan, actually triggers them. And they oppose them on various grounds. They could be environmental grounds or the idea that they boost neoliberalism. And they're very right to oppose them. Because according to their view, if individuals have more choice, this means less power to the authoritarian paternalist like Corbyn-style socialism. So no, no, no surprise that they oppose these projects. But also I would claim there is no such thing as fully automated communism. And here's why. In real life, what this means is let the capitalists produce and then we're going to appropriate or, quote, socialize. But the problem is that this is not a project about creating something new. This is, about a, project, this is a project about taking away or appropriating or socializing something which is already there. So what we really need to understand is that the conditions necessary to create a society of plenty and to create a society of abundance are the same conditions that are needed to retain such a society. And the number one condition for this is freedom. And this is what gave us the Industrial Revolution, and this is what gave us, this has been the biggest improver in history. So the idea that we're going to use one system to build this wealth and the automation and the robots, and then suddenly we're going to have another system that's going to retain this abundance, to my mind, does not work. But also it's interesting to, po to understand the, this, this vocabulary. For example, there is a talk about democracy in the market or participatory economics. The way I understand participatory economics is that Rob is creating, for example, something, something cool, something new, and then we all come together and we, and we decide how it is distributed. Now, this doesn't sound like a very good deal for Rob, but also notice the passive voice, income that will be universally guaranteed, or notice X will be provided, and the question is provided by whom and guaranteed by whom? Who will create it and who is going to distribute it? And based on what principles? Is it going to be the majority by a vote? Is it going to be a commission? Is it going to be an enlightened leader? And what if the producer, what if Rob, does not agree with this model of distribution? Has he got a say in this? And my final point is that automation and technology on steroids does not look to me like the grave diggers of capitalism. They mostly look like capitalism as kind of at its purest. And I would say that there's a higher possibility that automation and technology are going to actually be the grave diggers of the paternalistic state and the grave diggers of regulators rather than, uh, rather than the grave diggers of, of, of capitalism. And my main problem with accelerationists and space communists and, and luxury communists, although I appreciate their urge for, for progress, is that they haven't properly understood what makes possible an industrial society, not to mention a fully automated society. And what we need in order to have such a society, and which is again what has brought the biggest improvements in our life, is leaving people free to think and to produce. And one more thing, this is not enough. 
because we also need to fight the battle of ideas, not like the event, but out there, for a cultural atmosphere where technology and human achievements are celebrated and industry is celebrated rather than seen with a suspicious eye as merely adding up to our carbon footprint. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Wendy. Hi. Uh, so I did have something prepared, but then the previous speech was very provocative, so I think we're just going to respond to that one instead. So um, I just want to preface this by saying that I'm quite new to a critical understanding of capitalism. I really only discovered what it really was, I guess, like a couple of years ago when I started reading about it. I come from a tech background, so I used to be one of those people who loved the idea of innovation and disruption. I thought Silicon Valley was great. I thought people like M Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs were just amazing and that we should celebrate this very capitalist form of progress and innovation. And in the last couple of years, I've come to realize that that was actually quite naive. Um, at the same time, I still believe in the utopian potential of technology, but I now realize that the social system under which the technology is developed can, in fact, have quite dystopian implications. And I think we've gone to the point where it has actually become quite a fetter on the ability to innovate and the ability to produce. And so I, I don't agree that it's necessary to have the same system that we do now in order to maintain uh, use of technologies in order to continue innovating the same way that we used to be able to. Uh, and so I guess what I want to do with my really short talk is instead of talking about facts or the history or, you know, just facts and figures about economics, is instead talk about framing. Because I think the way that we understand what capitalism is and the way that we think about how it works actually has a huge impact on what possibilities we can imagine. Because otherwise, you know, we're constrained to a very limited view of what the world is and what it could be. And so the way that I think is useful to think about capitalism is as um, analogous to adolescence as a life stage. And so if you think about um, you know, feudalism maybe as early childhood and then capitalism as adolescence, then what you see is capitalism is, in fact, probably a necessary stage, or at least a stage that you know, we've gone through and that we are in the middle of, and that it, it, has, um, it is important and that it is necessary to be able to generate certain things, but at the same time, it is a limiting and limited framework. And if we want to mature and get, get past that, then we'll have to think about ways of changing the way we see the world. Um, and I guess uh, part of that just relies on ideology, because all of us right now, we're living in a world that is heavily conditioned by the material world that we live in, and that means that we're very much shaped by this very neoliberal uh, subjectivity. We see ourselves in a very individualistic way where we're conditioned by market forces, and that is a problem in imagining how we can create a world that is governed by different social relations, one where... Um, one where production is geared for the purpose of collective good, as opposed to making a few individual entrepreneurs and venture capitalists rich. And I think to understand capitalism fully, you need, you need to think about what Marx is saying, um, and, I, and I think Aaron will probably talk about this more, but I don't think it's uh, a useful way to think of capitalism without understanding exploitation. Um, and understanding the exploitation that all this innovation that we glorify rests on, right? Because every, you know, for every iPhone, how many people are forced to work in terrible backbreaking conditions, are, are committing suicide to make these things happen, and who is benefiting, who, who gets to control this? These are all questions that are kind of swept under the rug when we are treated as consumers and we interact with each other as if we're only consumers who don't have any relation, uh, any responsibility for each other. Um, and I think just to touch on what the previous speaker said, this, this way of viewing ourselves as very individualistic, atomized consumers, it feels to me like this classic libertarian fantasy 
that you know you as an individual can just produce something and therefore you should be the one who decides where it goes and you should be the one who reaps the rewards. None of us produces anything individually. For one, we are not born. We do not make ourselves in this world individually, right? We are born through the work of other people and other people raise us, other people provide us food. No one can exist in this society as an atomized individual. And I think once we recognize that, then that opens the door for helping us to understand different social arrangements and ideally ones that are more fair, that are more egalitarian, that coincide with what we view as progress. Um, and I think when it comes to the question of is capitalism digging its own grave, I mean, that question itself is a little risky because it implies that um, capitalism itself so- somehow has agency and that we can just do whatever we want, but you know, something capitalism will just make something happen. But capitalism only acts through actors like ourselves. And so I think it's important to remember that if we think that the world we live in is unjust, exploitative, or in any way not ideal, then we have to figure out what we as individuals can do. Um, And maybe that means that agency is only on the matter of uh, the collective and the class. Maybe we can only make things happen if we work with each other. But at the same time, um, I do think it's important to remember that we have to figure out what we can do to change the world that we live in. Thanks. Thank you. Some big stuff coming up so far. Um, Aaron, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I'll just respond quickly to a few points. In regard to Elon Musk, Tesla received a $465 million loan from the Department of Energy in the United States to keep it going. SpaceX is impossible without NASA contracts. So the idea that somehow this eccentric, uh, born in South Africa, moved to Canada, made all this happen, isn't true. The US taxpayer socialized all of the risk and of course some of the upside should go to the people that you know put their personal energies into it like Elon Musk but it's impossible as, as Wendy just said without a broader social context uh, under underpinning it. Secondly uh, industrial capitalism didn't emerge because of freedom. If you look at the first two countries which industrialized one is the Dutch Republic the second is Great Britain. The Dutch Republic one of the reasons why it's so um, disposed to being flooded is actually Tens of feet were dug in the 16th and 17th centuries. It's basically built on peat. Now, peat burns almost the same efficiency as coal. So you had a huge concentration of carbon energy in in the Dutch Republic. You have the same in the UK with coal. You have the steam engine emerge early 18th century. It's called the new common engine. Gets very powerful with Watt's engine by the late 18th century. These are the things, along with the the enclosures of land in the UK after Elizabeth, this creates landless labourers the end of feudalism. They then have to sell their labor to someone on a market. That's what we call the proletariat. These are materialist variables in making sense of why capitalism emerges first in North Europe. You know, I think it's just, it's not just cliched. I mean, it's now ridiculous in 2018 to say the, the base of capitalism is freedom. I mean, it's like a child. I mean, you know, anyway, I expected a higher tone of debate, but whatever. We can, uh, hopefully I can try and debase it as we proceed. I would like to say that the reason why we're moving to fully automated luxury communism is that three of the central features of modern capitalism are now under attack by virtue of its own principles playing out. These are, in no particular order, scarcity, the price mechanism, uh, and wage labor. Now, scarcity is most obvious in information. We have something called zero marginal cost in information, and we, we all know that exists in information. You can create a music file, it costs you money, but then to put it, um, reprint it or to reproduce it ad infinitum, we know that's very cheap. Now, the question is, how much of the economy does that really spread to, that tendency of zero margin cost in information? Some people are quite sceptical. 
And they say, okay, well, it creates issues for the, for, the, for the film industry or for music, but beyond that, it doesn't really, doesn't really have much importance. But actually, we find with things like gene editing, with things like renewable energy, and ultimately with things like automation, we're going to see zero marginal cost hit the fundamental factors of production. Energy, labor, resources. That, of course, has consequences for scarcity. Capitalism is premised on the, on the eternal uh, prevalence of scarcity. It's about the distribution of resources under conditions of scarcity. Now, if that bet is wrong, if scarcity doesn't always exist, again, some of its key assumptions no longer work. I'm not interested in a moral critique of Adam Smith. He was clearly a very smart person. I think capitalism is a massive upgrade on feudalism. The point is, if we're social scientists and empiricists, and we see the core assumptions of a particular mode of production no longer hold, then we have to act accordingly, surely. Thirdly, one of the key features of capitalism, I think the key feature of capitalism, is that workers have to sell their labour on a market. This does two things. Firstly, it allows them to live, but also it gives them the wages to buy the things that they produce. And there's a great anecdote between Walter Reuther, who was a union representative for the Automobile Workers' Union in the United States, and uh, Henry Ford III. And Henry Ford III in the 1950s is taking Reuther around this new Detroit factory. And he says, how are you going to get these guys to pay union subs? And Reuther turns back and says, how are you going to get them to buy your cars? And this is the point. If we have more and more of market economies uh, uh, distributing um, reallocating tasks to what we call fixed capital, we're going to have fewer and fewer people having the capacity through their wages to buy more and more goods and services made more and more efficiently than ever before. So we have a Keynesian problem there, a problem of underconsumption, overproduction. A social democrat would say, well, we can... And I, again, I think that's actually incontrovertible. A social democrat would say, well, you know, we need to therefore bolster the unions, UBI. That's a, that's a political question. I think the fact that we have this issue of underconsumption, it's terminal, is of huge importance. And actually, The Economist in 2011 put it beautifully. I never thought I'd say that. Magazine founded, you know, to, uh, to repeal the Corn Laws in the 1830s. They asked a brilliant question. If you look at Smith, you look at Ricardo, you look at Mills, you look at Chevens, even if you look at Karl Marx, again, a fundamental presumption is you have labour and you have capital. And the economist says, what happens when labour becomes capital? Very good question. So that, along with scarcity, along with the breakdown of the price mechanism, I believe poses secular problems and questions for capitalism. And as I've said, it's not just automation. If you look at, for instance, energy... We're looking at uh, massive improvements in energy storage with lithium-ion batteries, in solar generation, in wind turbine technology. And this is now in the Financial Times, The Economist. The problem is, if something is getting cheaper every year, there is no incentive under capitalism to produce it for a profit, because you cannot. This is a problem. If you have deflation of a good or service every year, you can't sell it for profit. The market can't function. So again, we have another core assumption to capitalism, which may no longer be holding true. Uh, so... I'll leave you with that, actually, if I do have 30 more seconds. Okay. This is, from, um, this is from 2001, and this is from a paper by Bradford DeLong and Larry Summers. And they say, if information goods are to be distributed at their marginal cost of production, zero, and this is Larry Summers, they cannot be created and produced by entrepreneurial firms that use revenues obtained from sales to customers to cover their fixed costs. They must be able to anticipate selling their pr products at a profit to someone. 
And so their, their solution is natural monopoly. And this is fundamentally the politics of capitalism over the next 10, 20, 30 years. It'll be a political imposition of scarcity. So if you believe in freedom, if you believe in progress, if you believe in enlightenment, then comrades, you have to be communists. <laughs> All right, comrades. Uh, we'll have to hear from Comrade Rob next. <laughs> uh, so, uh, following those excellent, I'll move it a bit closer oh, to you, right? yeah. uh, So, following those sort of excellent opening uh, remarks, I'm going to start by being a bit more boring uh, and remarking on a, p a few things that are often left out of this debate. Um, I hope to kind of pour a bit of cold water upon the excitement around um, the potential of technology to transform our lives business and uh, the economy by looking at some of the operational challenges uh, that renders a lot of this um, potential, I think, highly improbable, well, not highly improbable, but improbable. Um, businesses themselves will be slow to take up automation and robotics as basically capital is expensive. Um, and that being an expense reduces the appetite to raise that capital, lend it and give it away to replace labour, who can just be fired as and when the, the, the need um, arises within a business. It gives it a lot more flexibility compared to replacing it with machinery, which is a sunk cost and dep depreciates with time. Businesses do, of course, raise capital in and invest in new opportunities and technologies, but it's tempered by conventional business acumen and risk aversion. Um, and this won't disappear whether or not any sort of new technologies come about. You'll still see these shackles slowing down businesses on, the, on this technological uptake. The industries with more straightforward production processes um, have already automated production. The big monopoly businesses in various sectors that have the capital and incentive to automate in order to protect their leading position in the market, in particular car manufacturers, mining and, and certain logistic companies. The vast majority of businesses, which are SMEs, simply don't have the strategic slack capital or market certainty to engage in any process of rapid uh, automation or using AI. Competing in the current business climate will take priority, leading to a much slower uptake um, of robotics and uh, AI in the workplace. And uh, another, another problem, if you think driverless cars are around the corner, I caution you this. Invention without innovation is legion. The flying car is perhaps the most famous example. The technology has existed for decades, but for limit limitations in regulation, aerodrome infrastructure, and more economical alternatives, such as commercial flying or renting a car, make this technology, this invention, unviable as a common mode of transport. And I would argue that a lot of hotly tipped inventions and robots we see showcased today in trade shows and magazines will never actually be more, more efficient than existing alternatives due to those innovation costs. Um, and then I think actually sort of robots and AI um, and UBI might actually entrench capitalism. Um, if the price of goods and services are hurtling towards zero, this does not mean that capitalism is fresh out of frontiers to commodify. Capitalism is incredibly agile and it's survived. It's withstood economic crashes, world wars and a serious existential threat and challenge from communism as a competing economic and political system. Capitalism will find these new goods and services to commodified, perhaps exemplified by the handyman apps, such as task rabbits. Now you can earn a wage by selling your labour, walking 
petting someone's dog or putting up shelves. Who would have thought that those services would now be transactional when previously you might have to ask your neighbour to do such things? And what's occurred during this fantastic sort of abundance and surplus that, at least in the West, we, we currently enjoy is that I think we all have internalised the idea that nearly everything and anything could be bought and sold. Just look at the many occupations that didn't exist even 10 years ago. People earn money playing video games, putting on makeup, designing apps or managing social media. Our demands for goods and services appears unlimited, and I think this is actually what will keep a market-based capitalist economy afloat through any technological change we might experience in the next 30 or 50 years. The jobs that will be lost will give space to previously unthought of occupations we haven't even imagined yet. Furthermore, does any of this technological progress change the landscape of who owns capital and why they own it? Why is robotics or automation seen as something that undermines classical property relations. If anything, I would argue it merely entrenches those who are in the possession of capital rather than expose them to change or, or revolution. Um, and I would say that even if we accept the premise, I know it wasn't made on the panel, but that automation will remove jobs and not replace them and we'll all be working 15 hours a week, um, I would say that is possibly achievable through social democracy and UBI. Um, I don't quite see the motivation or justification for embarking on a communist or a libertarian revolution to get to that sort of utopian state of affairs, even, as much as we may want to head towards there. And I think I'd make my final point and I'd argue that those making the case for sort of post-capitalism, whether usually in the fully automated luxury communist sense or kind of techno Silicon Valley uh, idea, um, is actually a substitute um, for actual politics experienced in history, in, uh, in history and today. Technology is seen as this sort of magical solution that tells the communists how to plan an economy, um, what resources to use and why and who gets to decide. And for the Silicon Valley techno-optimists, um, it offers them a way of actually avoiding politics and avoiding thinking about the divisions within our societies that they just think that bunging a robot here or an app there um, has no unintended consequences and that people will adapt and use that technology in ways that they hope the best case scenario. Essentially, I don't think anything really has changed or, or will change. We're still debating the age-old political questions and technolo technological progress has not paved an easier way to transcend capitalism. If we are to transcend capitalism in some way in, in our lifetimes, then the focus shouldn't be on sort of shiny-looking technology, but on whether there is a viable belief and desire by the population to transcend capitalism as they know and understand it and, and then how you do that and what that would look like and I think that is um, uh, the big question that's been you know debated for 150 years. Okay thank you very much. Okay so Panel, this is the way I want to work it, is that I'm going to go out to the audience now and get people's opinions and questions, and I think there's going to be loads. <laughs> so I would ask you just to pay attention to what's being said and just try and pick up on one or two things that you want to respond to or questions that you want to answer. I'm going to take a bunch and then bring you back to pick, but literally you'll have to pick out one or two each uh, to respond to so we can keep it flowing back and forward. So... Let's see, where should we start? So, uh, Rob, it's an issue you identified, but I just want to ask the rest of the panel, your optimism 
that capitalism has finally reached its end. I understand, but have people not been saying that for over a century? If we look back to the writings of Karl Marx, did he not predict the collapse of capitalism for similar arguments that you've given, just with different technology? Um, I'm a politics student. I've looked a lot at the writings of various different socialist um, thinkers, and looking at Bernstein's ideas of the appeasement of the proletariat, what makes you think that that won't continue? What makes you think that there is enough difference now for people to get rid of capitalism when it's survived thus far in very unfair conditions? Okay, thank it's you. Now, it's now different, right? Okay, at the front. Hi, good evening. Thank you very much for very impassioned talks. Um, I was actually born in a communist country, and I'm old enough to remember a little bit of how communism works. And now I live in capitalism, so I have a pretty interesting dualist perspective. And as a mean of comment, I find it sort of fantastically naive when I see people who are born and raised or live most of their life in sort of liberal capitalist democracies to espouse the virtues of communism, which honestly didn't work terribly well. I mean, it was... <laughs> On the other hand, when I hear the, no offense, ramblings going from, you know, sort of Ayn Rand camp, it's like so cruel and so, I mean, I can't sign under that either. It's, it's to me, it's like really reprehensive. But the question is like, there's so many clever and sort of open-minded people here, yet you basically just are in two camps. One is some sort of future techno-communism. The other one is capitalism, hardcore version to zero. So. Is there really nothing better that we can think of? Is it just two camps that have to entrench themselves? Okay. Uh, so, um, this being the battle of ideas, I'd like to challenge a couple of the speakers. Guy, um, you claim that the Labour share of income is uh, falling relative to that of um, things like royalties and rents and uh, gains to ownership. Um, that was more or less disproved by the more or less programme on Radio 4 recently, where it was proven that the labour share of income in the UK is rising, in fact. And that is despite the very heavy tax on labour, taxes on labour, that uh, workers face rather than those earning royalties. Real wages, let's not forget, are subject to two classes of national insurance, student loan, auto-enrolment, apprenticeship levy, and that's before any other deductions. You are advocating universal basic income, which, unless it was to become funded by borrowing, would have to be funded by some sort of taxation, which would almost certainly fall additionally to workers who are already paying these many taxes. And the combination of them is stunning. If somebody is able to earn something like, say, £1,500 of extra earnings, you might be surprised to know that under certain circumstances, the actual value of that to them could easily be less than 500 quid. And if you'd like to discuss that very startling statistic with me, I'll be in the bar later. Okay. The second challenge, Aaron... I'd like to echo the point made by my immediate predecessor. Please don't advocate communism. It implies that you are not self-critical. It implies that you tolerate totalitarianism. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I find it quite exciting, the idea of fully automated luxury stuff. I, th I think that's great. But what I want to know is who are the agents of change in this? Because at the moment, the account... I mean, I, I, res I respect you've only had a couple of minutes. But at the moment, it sounds very passive that it's going to be brought along by technology. But if you look at 
you know, who could be the agents of change? It probably today isn't going to be the working class who are not very organised. It probably isn't going to be the political Corbynite left who are fundamentally conservative, you know, who are as scared of leaving the single European single market, which was invented in 1993. Leaving that is apparently the end of the world, something unthinkable. So where is this grand change going to come from and who is going to push it through? Good afternoon. Um, I'm quite excited by the idea of UBI, but one of my concerns is that as we have more money, the level of consumption will, will obviously increase. So the amount of things we're digging out of the ground, the amount of things we're burning into the atmosphere, because the combustion engine isn't going to disappear overnight, that's going to increase. And surely that will accelerate the destruction of the planet, basically where we live. So what, basically where we live. Where, what would be the, the answer to that, really? If we um, look at how Western economies have responded to since the financial crisis, you, it, it, it seems pretty clear that the approach they've taken is to, um, you know, if you look at the UK, em, uh, employment, you know, the employment levels have gone up and up and up. There's clearly a massive pool of labour for, for businesses to draw upon, which has kept wage, wage growth relatively low. In those circumstances where you've got a large pool of, uh, of workers that you can draw upon, what's the incentive for um, businesses to innovate by introducing risky, potentially failed expenses into new technology? Okay, so, panel, don't try to answer everything. One or two points, please. I think, I think the audience has had a go at just about everybody, so that's nice and even. So, <laughs> Guy. Um, yes, quite a few questions. I'm going to quickly go through them. Um, I don't know where the two camps in this, this debate are. I'm certainly in neither of those two camps that were characterised. But um, I don't think capitalism has reached its end. I think it's lurched into rentier capitalism, and that is a need for fundamental reform. I fully agree with the critiques of communist countries. I worked in the Soviet Union and Ukraine uh, at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I saw the outcomes. On the, on the income distribution figures... I can give you 1,000 references. The Bank of England has demonstrated that the share has changed dramatically. Ask Andy Haldane, the OECD, the IMF, the World Bank. The, you can go on. It's huge change. I think, actually, you don't need to tax incomes to raise enough money for paying for a basic income. We rely incredibly little on wealth taxes in this country. Only 4% of our total fiscal revenue comes from taxes on wealth. We don't have a wealth tax. We don't have a land value tax. Other countries do. And we have a situation where we ha the government has made sure there are 1,156 tax reliefs. That's their own statement. And the top 209 of those tax reliefs result in the Treasury losing in their own estimates, not mine, £403 billion per year. Think of that, because that means that there are regressive subsidies being given to powerful interests. So I think you can fund a basic income. They've shown that in Alaska. They've shown it with setting up a commons fund in Norway, where instead of privatising their oil, they created a wealth fund, so that technically today every Norwegian is a millionaire because they didn't dissipate their North Sea oil. So on that basis, now on the Agency for Change, if I may just quickly make this point, there's a whole chapter on that. The precariat are organizing. 
Podemos, Alternativit, the Movimento Cinque Stelle, all of these movements may not be ideal, but they're energy of new form of agency. And on the last point on your, and my book goes into it in great detail, one of the virtues of a basic income is that it encourages work that is not labor, care work, voluntary work, community work. And if you give people a basic income, they do more of those forms of work rather than resource-depleting labor. And so you don't have to rely on rapid economic growth to reach the lower-income groups. I could go into that at length, but essentially it would, has a virtuous effect for ecological reasons as well. Okay, right. Uh, Nikos, you're heartless apparently, so if you could... <laughs> Okay, two comments, 20 seconds each. So on the idea that somehow we are today worse off and that the, the income has gone up. So I am on the 50% of the poorest people in this country because apparently supporting freedom doesn't pay really well. And yet I can afford, although I'm quite cheap, a masseuse, I can afford going to the supermarket and having foods from all over the world, and I can afford having all the films and all the... All the all the, all the music of the world two clicks away. So this is the answer on that. On the point that there is somehow gray area and there is kind of, we shouldn't go to these two extremes. I say we should, because the one side says that people are ends in themselves, and it says that solidarity and cooperation, who are wonderful things, should come from the top down and should be voluntary. The other side says that the state should have a say on how much sugar should be in your diet coke, and the state has a say on how much money you can make, i.e. how successful we can, you can be, which means how much you can think and how much you produce. Between these sides, I do take a side, and I'm an extremist. There's no gray area in between them. Okay. <laughs> Wendy, what do you want to come back on? Uh, okay, so the first question about, um, I thought it was a great question, is, is, it, is this time the time that you know, things are going to be different? I don't know, maybe not, it's not going to happen today, it might not happen in the next five, ten years, it might happen you know, 100 years from now, but at the same time it only really has to happen once, so I guess all we can do is try to get it to happen as quickly as possible. Um, and to the question down here about the center ground and you know capitalism versus communism, I, I think I agree that it's that's not an ideal framing, especially when we think about communism as it has existed in the past. And I think the right way to think about it is to, I mean, I don't know um, how you want to think about it, but for me, when I think about um, what Aaron is talking about with communism, he's not talking about returning to uh, the Soviet Union, right? And I was also born in a communist country, and I don't think that the way China is run now is necessarily ideal. I think what we have to do when thinking about the future is try to figure out what parts of the social, the social order we live in now are ideal and what parts are not, and then figure out a way to excise the bad parts. Um, and then uh, to the last point about businesses not automating, I think that's something that Rob addressed really well as well. And I think the answer to that is that, yes, it's true that businesses are not going to automate, and that is a bad thing, and that we need to find ways to work around that, whether that means organizing the working class so that uh, there is more power and so that you know businesses are incentivized to automate, or by taking away the power of corporations to make these decisions, realizing that these decisions should be socialized, should be democratic, rather than left to the mercy of um, a few corporations who have no goal than to enhance shareholder value. Okay, thank you very much, Aaron. Um, so, yeah, I'm not an optimist either for a number of reasons. Uh, why is this time different? Um, I think there are a number of crises set to determine the 21st century. Ageing is one. Um, in 1900, I think one in 100 people would hit the age of 80. Now it's going to be around one in three for people born today. We have obviously have very low birth replacement rates, so we have an ever smaller body of taxpayers paying for ever more elderly people. 
And actually, there is job creation. It's true. If you look at the fastest growing jobs in the US, yes, there's solar cell installer, wind turbine engineer, but it's overwhelmingly in social care. So we, we, the, the economy will absolutely create new jobs, but it'll be entirely oriented around geriatric care. Um, in other sectors, you'll see a mass shrinking. It's not just that, there's climate change. Climate change isn't about it being 25 degrees on an October day. It means that much of the United States, the Middle East, North Africa, even Southern Europe, won't really have sufficient agriculture to maintain large populations. That's going to be quite soon. Uh, it also means uh, large surplus populations in the global south. In Africa, continent of Africa's population will double between now and 2050. At the same time, crop yields will fall, fresh water will fall. These are huge systemic challenges to global capitalism, whether or not you agree with certain ideas around automation. So the reason why this time is different is that there are four or five existential threats. I would say each of them is on a par with communism, actually, with Soviet communism. The response about, I come from a communist country, so, you know, I mean, I come from a a, a capitalist country. Doesn't America need to be proud or upset about the fact that 40 million people in the United States today need food stamps? 40 million people need state aid to eat. That was no different to the... And by the way, when we see food queues in the Eastern Bloc, that was because of a major debt crisis in the 1980s. There was a huge downturn. In terms of uh, affordability of uh, foods, in terms of clothing, in terms of living standards, they broadly go up from 1945 to the late 1970s. So I think it's a kind of neutral question. I, I use the word communism clearly to provoke. I don't think that an economy at the cutting edge of automation in any way resembles what was in 1917 the most agrarian backwards economy in Europe. Uh, finally, there was a really good question here about, sorry, uh, workers' automation. Really good, great point. If you look at, for instance, um, Amazon Go, they've just trialled a new store. It's in Seattle, Right. They work out, and by the way, Amazon bought uh, Whole Foods last year for a very good reason. They've worked out that the average supermarket in the U.S. employs around 70 shift workers overall. They believe with their self-service technology, they can reduce that to five or six. Now, how many people work in retail? How many people work in low productivity, low skill service work? All those jobs are gone. So yes, the, the political class likes to talk about SMEs. Most people don't really work for SMEs. Most of the economy doesn't come from SMEs. And the new, uh, the new economy, well, that's prone to monopoly anyway, right? And as well as automation. So, you know, there are real existential threats here from automation. I have a friend who works for a company okay. who works around facial recognition software. Amazon plans to roll out 3,000 of these stores next year in the United States. Well, starting from next year. Okay, Rob. Um, just to uh, start on the why this time, I mean, I, mean, I think I, in, in my opening address, I... I was pretty sceptical that it's not going to be this time. However, there is a, a coming storm of problems that are being stored up that I think a Guy writes about quite a lot in his books, Aaron and Wendy, um, have mentioned. If we just sort of narrow it down into the UK, if you look at um, voting intention uh, by age in the 60s, you know, you see that the younger people are all voting uh, sort of Labour and they're all sort of believing in, in left and countercultural things. You know, it's weighted that way and it's Uh, the older people are the ones who are more conservative. What happened in the next 40 years wasn't that we elected a sort of surrealist, um, internationalist, Marxist government that, that, that that, that might have been popular with those young people in the 60s. They all got jobs, started families, owned houses, and they had something to conserve. So then they became the bedrocks of capitalism. I think at the moment, that process of sort of, you know, the older you get, the more right wing you get, isn't necessarily going to happen if there are fewer household uh, homeowners uh, and people are in a precarious um, 
position. I don't know what the reaction to that will look like, and I'm sceptical that it will be formulated in any coherent sort of socialist or communist sort of agitation, but that is something that a, a, a lot of the political elite should be pretty worried about. Their bedrock of support, the people who do, you know, sit on school boards um, uh, and do a lot of trustee stuff because they've got the, the, the security, isn't there, and that could really undermine the, you know, the, the capitalism in not fundamentally but cause a lot of problems that will be very interesting i'll just come to what incentives do businesses uh, sort of have of innovating i think profit uh, does actually equal some real value so in my example of the of, you know of the flying car that's a great invention but it's not worth doing so businesses are profit driven and they will make decisions to get rid of a, a particular technology or, or way of doing things if it just doesn't make any sense and that's one of the that's one of the the good things about a a capitalist market economy is sometimes it tells you what's a useful um way to 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 use resources and and for what end um and then just finally um just i I, maybe this would be directed at sort of guy but with ubi i was thinking about ubi and what potential problems it might have so think about this um in the uk everyone uh, gets 10 grand a year Given, given to them, and then you know the, ta- the, the, the tax system is sort of layered. So currently, you're a uh, an artist who works half the time pulling pints in a pub, and you get some money for your art, um, but it's not particularly you know sells sells enough for it to be a full time job. That ten grand means you go, oh great, I'm going to stop uh, pulling pints and just focus on my art. But maybe no one wants you to do your art full time, uh, and in. <laughs> And and, um, and and so actually what happens is I like drinking pints, so I go into a pub and the, pint, the cost of pints have gone up because they've had to pay people a lot more to incentivise them to do something socially useful like pull a pint while there's more art that I don't want. And that's just a, that, 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 that's just a, a, a particular interesting problem uh, that I, I thought of. I don't know if it would bear out, but it's something to think about. Okay, panel, relax again, but keep your ears open. Right, we're... I want lots of quick-fire points now. I know lots of people want to speak, and I want to get in as many as possible. I think the, the problem that we're, that we're having with this debate is we can talk about economic systems and things like that, but what we're actually l- like losing is individual agency. So, for example, what both, of, what both sides of the extremes are advocating are things that fundamentally enslave people. So Amazon, Apple, things like that, they are effectively... Soviet bodies in the so sense how that... How do they enslave? I mean, they, they are. the Soviet bodies. They underpay people. They tie them to a sort of cycle of, of, of labour that they can't, they can't escape from. Is and they don't really give them any, any right to form, to form unions. Um, and the same with, with, with communism. Even if... I understand that you two aren't sort of advocating a return to the Soviet Union, but if you sort of ever try to face a, like, a base society on something that has fundamental all-round equality, then as soon as someone takes the agency upon themselves to break the social order, they have to be punished by that society. So would something in the middle be something like the Greek economist Yanis Varoufakis has proposed that when you become of age, reach adulthood, you inherit a robot. You have a personal stake in that robot. You can make it better. You can sell it for yourself. You can make it if you take on that agency. So it's almost like an entrepreneurial UBI. So that would encourage agency, but it would also give us a sort of social safety. Okay, net. that's not a quick point. Sorry. <laughs> so stop. A quick point, a quick question for uh, Professor Standing. So I think that your analysis of the sort of situation as it is, is was probably the best I've heard from the panel today. Um, but what, I, what confuses me is why you wouldn't go down the route of sort of getting rid of some of this patent law, um, freeing up that area of the economy. Um, and is that something you would suggest uh, in addition to your UBI? And if so, what would you suggest? 
I just wanted to say we don't have to go as far to think about artificial intelligence and robots and far away in the future to think about a different system that could destroy capitalism. I think, like, for example, Uber is just an app. If we could find a way, except that that app has an owner, the company Uber has an owner who makes profit. If we could make an app that somehow the drivers could organize themselves and have all the profit. So what I think, that would be a completely different system. We are putting the people, the workers, at the owner. That doesn't belong to the state. And so that's not the state telling you what you can do. People can organize themselves. And so I think what technology does right now, it's allow for people to connect to each other and communicate and give the tools to create other systems. We don't have to. Okay, okay, that's right. That's right. Uh, uh, pass it that way. And yes. So my question is about transitions. What do the panel members see as the way that they're actually going to get closer to their ideal? So Aaron, for example, do you envision fully automated luxury communism in one country? Or is there, is there some other intermediate? And, and, and Guy, I mean, how do you see the next steps towards universal basic income? Is it just that Norway goes further in that direction, becomes a shining model for the rest of the world to emulate? Yes. Um, a, quick, a quick point for Aaron. Um, I think um, your argument was that uh, automation is going to eliminate scarcity, and this is going to be trouble for capitalism, right? Sorry. Yes? No. No? Automation is going to create difficulties to the reproduction of the wage relation, which will undermine demand. So what's your relation to, to scarcity? What was your, your point of scarcity, scarcity in capitalism? I said about information. We've clearly reached post-scarcity of information. The question is, I mean, that's happened. And the question is how much the economy that will ultimately spread to. Be, be, because okay, my, this okay. is not a conversation. One, one point. Because my point is scarcity is, is not uh, an enemy of capitalism. It's okay. not a friend of capitalism. It's the it's absolute enemy of capitalism. Because when there's scarcity, uh, the, the, the ideal of capitalism is you have no scarcity and no entry buyers and you can have a lot of competing players. Whereas scarcity when there's scarcity, this is the main argument to have central planning. And okay, it, it's, okay. it's in a wartime economy that you have food rationing, not in a capitalist economy. Okay, if all of our commodities are going to be produced by robots in the future, would that mean the end of the commodity fetish? We would no longer see commodities as embodied labour. Mm. We wouldn't see them as storing up our human creativity and power. <laughs> Do you think the death of capitalism can run in tandem with the decline and um, running out of fossil fuels? We're not running out, but... Okay, okay right. <laughs> okay, sorry, yes. Are we not in danger of um, thinking that technology can solve a whole load of problems um, when, in fact, a lot of the problems are caused by the fact that we have a lot of people looking backwards in history and trying to reinterpret what they're seeing now in terms of something they knew from 50, 60, 70, or even 150 or 60, 70 years ago. Should we not be looking forwards rather than backwards? Okay, right. Exactly. So, uh, uh, yes. Yep. Very similar to my question. I noticed there are no historians on the panel, and we have mentioned history a few times, and we have to when we're talking about communism. How serious should our engagement with history be when we're thinking about busting up or finding alternatives to capitalism, or should we actually, you know, is it good that we don't have historians on the panel? Okay, two rows back there, and then whoever's got the microphone here. Yeah. Um, cheers. Uh, given the title of this, uh, this discussion, I was a bit surprised that not one of you, not even Guy or Aaron, offered a full defence of universal basic income. Okay? Now, I can understand why. No, you, you, re you, you really didn't. You talked for five minutes about the background. You, you didn't really. You do in your book, and I'll come to that in a second. Right. Now then, I want to prod you a little bit so you can say a bit more, okay? Because as far as I can see, even the most utopian versions of this are actually driven by deep pessimism and by fatalism rather than by any kind of ideals. As far as I can see, what we're talking about isn't the abolition of the precariat. It's the, the, ma the maintenance 
of a permanently un, uh, underemployed, pre precarious workforce and the subsidy of employers, right? Now, if you uh, okay, don't... that's it, no. So the, que question, the question is this. If, well, get on with it. If you don't think that, tell me why and, and, and what kind of bargaining power do workers or workless workers yeah. have once this is in place? Right, okay, so... Yeah. Yes? So my my point then, is, I, I think Aaron is very right to ask the questions he's asking. If you look at your, the... Sorry, sorry, carry on. If, if, you, if you look at the exponential increase in computing power per $1,000, by 2036, it should be possible to have a computer for $1,000 that is equal to the processing power of all human brains, if you just follow the curve. Mm -hmm. So in sometime in the next 20 years, we could be faced with a computer that is cleverer than every single person on the planet combined. What are we going to do in that situation? And I think something like the universal basic income is a good idea, but to me it feels inconsequential in the face of that te technological change. Have you ever tried to code a computer? Then you'll realise that we're not in any danger just yet. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, in the middle, though. Um, I, I applaud what Wendy said about uh, that we're all potentially agents of change. I think that's a very you know, positive message for a battle of ideas. But it highlights, I think, what really is different today, which isn't really anything to do with the economy, but it's to do with the culture. I mean, the guy over here mentioned it, that we, every discussion seems to be imbued with fatalism. You know, we can't get people into jobs, so we give them a, a universal basic income. You know, we can't uh, innovate uh, uh, sufficiently, so we come up with all these existential problems of, you know, aging populations, which are nothing new, climates, nothing new, you know, pollution, nothing new. We look at other things rather than looking in ourselves of seeing that we can change things. And it seems that culture of fear of the future, fear of change, is the real issue that we have to confront if we want to make a better world for ourselves. So it's a cultural issue, and let's not get sidetracked into what robots may or may not do. We have to be able to realise that. Okay, right. I'm sorry, everybody, but I have to. That's it for the audience participation. So I'm going to bring the panel back in, who have literally about two minutes at most each to to tackle questions to sum up what their point of view is. Yeah, I just want to disabuse the impression that I must have given that I'm a fatalist or pessimistic. I don't agree with that at all. I think we're at a wonderful moment when we can find the ways of redistributing the rent in order to give people a greater sense of freedom, a greater sense of security, and a greater sense of social justice. I don't approach basic income from a negative view one tiny second of my life. It is a way of liberating people, and I want to make that absolutely clear. The second point uh, about the history, I derive my interpretation of basic income and my advocacy of basic income from the constitutional document that founded this country. It was sealed in 1217, and it is a wonderful document, the Charter of the Forest. And it said every, it was England then, but every England has the right of subsistence. Every Englishman has a right to a home. Every Englishman has the right to raw materials and the right to work. Remarkable document. I believe that we are at the point when we can realize the principles that guided the, the Charter of the Forest. And that, I think, is a very positive message. I don't believe the technological revolution is going to make us all redundant. It's disruptive. It's causing more uncertainty. It's causing more inequality. But there's still going to be plenty of things we want to do. And the great thing about the precariat is it wants to work on its enthusiasms. It wants to work to develop themselves, not in 
subordinated positions in jobs, reporting to bosses. It wants to have that freedom to work. And it is a liberating agenda. I don't rely just on basic income. I've got a charter for the precariat with 29 articles, which I can't discuss now. But the, in five minutes, you have to tell a narrative that's very quick. And I think we are at the cusp where the precariat is going to define the progressive politics of the future. And that is why I've accepted uh, an unpaid post as an economic advisor to John McDonnell for the past year and a half. And I hope that we're steering them in that sort of direction. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Guy. Right, uh, Nikos. Two points. First, the idea that the cheaper something gets, then somehow capital is undermined makes no sense. If you see the giants like Google or Facebook, what they are actually doing is literally giving something away for free. Of course, I give, I give my information and the cookies, but I couldn't care less. And if I don't want, I don't use Google. So this idea that, that, that is, is, is not the case. My final point is the reason I went from being someone who has read Capital Volume 1 three times and Volume 2 and 3 one time to someone who is supporting, the, who is supporting more freedom and is now reading Atlas Shrugged instead of the Capital is that what you said, the idea that labor becoming the capital, I find this excellent, I find this great news. And that's why I like the sharing economy, because workers literally are owning the means of production. Your laptop can be the means of production. When you drive your Uber, you have more autonomy. And as our friend said, if you don't like Uber, don't use Uber. If you think Uber is, is exploiting workers, create a better Uber. But at the end of the day, please leave Uber alone and leave companies like Uber and people who are doing this great stuff, leave them alone. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Wendy. Uh, so the point about patent law, I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, I think that the reason we can't really just roll them, roll back the changes and uh, dismantle the system is that it has become so fundamental to the way capitalism works now, and that uh, revisiting that, uh, moving away from this uh, rontier capitalism that we live in, requires really fundamentally changing the economic system in such a way that it it wouldn't really resemble the world that we live in now. Um, and the point about Uber and um, you know, can you have like a worker co-op version of Uber? I think it's when we're thinking about how to build a different economy, it's important to realize that we need an ecosystem of different things, right? So you might have a worker co-op version of Uber, sure, but you would also probably need a more militant unionism. You need workers to, uh, to have like a, a much different um, role in the economy. You probably need a stronger welfare state as well, and I think all these things need to be explored at the same time. Um, and the points about history, I think think uh, it's a bit of a false dichotomy to think of in terms of um, you know going back to the past or versus looking at the future. I think you kind of need to look at the past to understand what the possibilities are for the future. Um, and just to, to finish up, so um, we've been talking a lot about innovation. And I think the, the thing that we miss out when it comes to innovation is that we don't just have to innovate on the level of products and you know fancy gadgets. We can innovate on the level of social relations and innovate on um, in terms of how do we allocate resources, how do we allocate our time right? as human beings who have to spend most of our time working, how can we imagine a better world? And if capitalism is you know, the current system that we live in that allocates these things right now, well, I think a lot of us have started to realize that it is suboptimal. And because it's suboptimal, then maybe we can imagine a better one. Okay, thank you very much, Wendy. Aaron. Yeah, so what I find quite funny is that half the audience might be saying, well, it's not very political, you know, you're a technological determinist, and the other half says, oh my God, communism. So, I mean, it is a political explanation, you may disagree with it, but if, if it's got the word communism in it, I mean, that's the politics. And so the presumption is, of course, that Labour has to create history 
if not under conditions of its own making, the class struggle is one of the determining factors of the historical process. Anyway, despite that, despite being a fully automated luxury communist, my proposals are actually rather social democratic. I believe in the short term of socialising capital markets. I believe in universal basic services, which are more or less extensions of human rights, education, transport, housing, healthcare. Uh, 1944, Roosevelt talks about a second Bill of Rights, and he says the first Bill of Rights, which was a legal and political document, was actually quite meaningless without these expanded economic rights. I'd agree with him. That's why I'm a fan of UBS, not UBI. I think an effective UBI is an affordable. I think an affordable UBI is an effective. That's why I prefer universal basic services. Notwithstanding that, for me, the long durée is fully automated luxury communism. Now, why is that? I believe that we're in the first decades of what I call, and this is to appeal to the Silicon Valley people, who I obviously want to sell books to ultimately, the third disruption. Now, the first disruption is the Neolithic Revolution. This is, in fact, paradoxically, dialectically, the invention of scarcity because we have the creation of a surplus for the first time, moving beyond hunter-gatherer society. And it's around this time, and don't worry, I'm finishing on this, and it's around this time where we create a surplus for the first ever time. With that, we get agriculture, culture, writing, society. That actually people begin to speculate about the idea of post-scarcity. It's in a, a poem of a, a, a compatriot of yours. He's called Teleslides, and he talks about fish dancing from the grill, fighting with each other to go into the poet's mouth, abundant loaves of bread, you know, hitting each other to go into his lips. This is there in the Garden of Eden. Eden. It's there in all of the axial faiths. It's there in Hesiod, when he talks about the, the golden days. So, paradoxically, it's with this creation of surplus that people talk about post-scarcity, and the second disruption is the Industrial Revolution, relative post-scarcity in mechanical labour. We see a huge demise in people working in agricultural jobs from 60 70% to 2 or 3%. Now, with this third disruption, which is an analogous relative post-scarcity in cognitive labour, anything which is repetitive can be automated, this is going to happen. I believe finally... Uh, finally, very, very quickly. Finally, those dreams of Telesides and of, the, of uh, the Garden of Eden can be fulfilled and that, yes, we can solve, as John Maynard Keynes put it, the economic question. OK, thank you very much. <laughs> Last but not least, Rob. I'll just respond to a couple of questions and then uh, sum up. Um, someone mentioned about uh, robots. Would that end commodity fetishism? Uh, not in capitalism. Someone will still have to program and direct uh, the robot's labour. So I don't see how that would change. You know, it, it's just a few steps removed, the relationship of labour um, to production. About fossil fuels, uh, they're not running out. It's kind of a complicated um, uh, argument Julian Simon sort of makes and resource economists have they're not running out but um, socialism and communist societies in the past and, and if they are to exist in the future um, will certainly need this um, until we say crack fusion it's just a an engineering and technical problem for now albeit framed by a lot of politics but I'm not convinced that um, fossil fuel use is is inherent to capitalism or you know uh, or, or socialism wouldn't make use of these uh, resources. And then um, the 2036 computer, I mean, that sounds great, but, um, you know, what do you do with it? What does, what does that mean? There's going to be a load of operational problems. You know, when I was working sort of doing M&A uh, in the business world, there's a lot of surprising uh, problems in getting stuff done. It's really hard. So while we may have these fantastic inventions, um, I don't see that that will necessarily lead to what we hope it uh, at actually produces. And then finally, I just would like to sort of sum up and say, um, I don't actually know what's next or, what, or, or what's possible. Um, 
we're too good to not push forward with progress of some kind. Uh, and one of the reasons why I, I sort of organise or produce this debate is because I actually love the literature around here, even if I disagree with it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I grew up being a massive fan of Star Trek, and that was, you know, that seems like an aspiration, albeit a little bit more militaristic. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I hope that through all this debate, but with, you know, a sceptical caution, uh, we can actually flesh out things that might work and new opportunities. The world will improve, provided we don't incinerate ourselves in nuclear war or, or burn to death with climate change. Um, but it will be better and it will look like probably nothing anyone in this room could have conceived of. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>